illustration, maybe a meal or just something ordinary happening, and somebody has done something totally outrageous or shocking or unusual. Cast your mind around. See if you can think of any situation you've been in like that, and just talk about what happened and how you felt and how people reacted. So say hello to people around you, then just see if you can come up with some experience you've had like that and just talk about it for a couple of minutes. Off you go. Coffee after the service. We're going to read from John's Gospel in chapter 13. It's on page 1081 in the Pew Bibles, or you can follow it on the screen. John chapter 13. We're going to read the first 17 verses. It was just before the Passover feast. Jesus knew that the time had come for him to leave this world and go to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he now showed them the full extent of his love. The evening meal was being served, and the devil had already prompted Judas Iscariot, son of Simon, to betray Jesus. Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power, and that he had come from God and was returning to God. So he got up from the meal, took off his outer clothing, and wrapped a towel around his waist. After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with a towel that was wrapped round him. He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? Jesus replied, You do not realize now what I am doing, but later you will understand. No, said Peter, you shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered, Unless I wash you, you have no part with me. Then, Lord, Simon Peter replied, not just my feet, but my hands and my head as well. Jesus answered, a person who has had a bath needs only to wash his feet. His whole body is clean, and you are clean, though not every one of you. For he knew who was going to betray him, and that was why he said not everyone was clean. When he had finished washing their feet, he put on his clothes and returned to his place. Do you understand what I've done for you? He asked them. You call me teacher. And Lord, and rightly so, for that is what I am. Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. I've set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. I tell you the truth, no servant is greater than their master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. Now that you know these things, you will be blessed if you do them. I ask you to talk about a situation, an ordinary situation, where somebody does something outrageous, just to get your minds thinking along the right track. Because actually, I don't think there are any modern parallels to what happens in that story we've just read. Now, one of the dangers of the Bible is, of course, we read it, and we've heard the stories many times, and it just becomes very familiar to us, and we lose the impact that would have been there for the people at the time. Now, the background to the story is really quite simple. If you got an invitation to somebody's house, before you went, you had a bath, but then you walked through the streets. If it was dry, your feet got covered in dust. If it was wet, they got covered in mud. Plus, the streets were full of animal droppings and all the rest of it. So that by, time, by the time you got there, your feet were fairly grubby. You're wearing sandals. And so, there would be, in an ordinary house, water for you to wash your feet. In the house of a richer person, there would be a servant, a slave, to wash your feet. The job of washing other people's feet was regarded as the lowest and the most demeaning job 
that anybody could do. In fact, some rabbis taught that if you had slaves, you could not make a Jewish slave do the job of washing other people's feet. You had to have a Gentile slave to do it because Gentiles were regarded as worthless and uh, had no rights. Nobody ever washed the feet of people who were inferior to them in social class. Nobody even washed the feet of people who were their equals socially. It just was not done. It's totally unprecedented. These people were seeing something that they had never seen before. It was unheard of. It was shocking. It was demeaning to Jesus in the culture of those days. It just didn't happen. And even more shocking for us reading the story later is that Jesus washes Judas' feet. Would you? He knew what Judas was going to do. He's talking about showing the full extent of his love. I wonder what it meant. Was he saying to Judas, there's one last chance. It's not too late. I don't know. Certainly something there about showing love to our enemies and those that persecute us. Jesus takes this role that no one ever took in that society except the lowest slave and he washes the feet of his disciples even the one who's going to betray him and in this story there are two big pictures that we're meant to understand john in his gospel the way he writes his stories there are always themes there that we are meant to pick out and to understand and the two big pictures are about salvation and service So let's pick up the theme of salvation first. Where is that? Well, it's all this business with Peter. You know, there in verse 8, verse 7. Well, let's go back to verse 6. Peter says, you're going to wash my feet. He's a bit gobsmacked by the whole thing. And he's, you know, he he can't get his head around it. And Jesus said, yeah, that's what I'm going to do. You don't understand what I'm doing later, which means after the crucifixion and resurrection, later you will understand. And Peter says, no way. You are not going to do it. This is demeaning to you. You will not wash my feet. And Jesus says, unless I wash you, you have no part with me. And then Peter, a typical Peter, he bounces to the other extreme, doesn't he? Wash all of me then. If, If washing makes me part of you, wash all of me. And Jesus said, if you had a bath, Remember, that was what they did before they went out to an invitation to a meal. If you've had a bath, you're clean. It's only your feet that need washing. And Jesus is talking about salvation. And the two parts of salvation that the theologians call justification and sanctification. Justification is a one-off thing. It's when our sin, with a capital S, is forgiven. When it's washed away. When it's dealt with. This is what Jesus achieved on the cross. When he died on the cross, for those who trust him and believe in him, our sin is dealt with. The principle of sin in our lives is forgiven. We're put right with God because Jesus bore our sin, because Jesus took our punishment, because Jesus died the death that we deserve. That's what he means by the bath. Some of the commentators talk about the parallel with baptism. But Jesus isn't saying if you're baptized... 
your sins will be dealt with, or if you're baptized, you'll be saved. It's just a coincidence here in that baptism is, symbolizes what's already happened and is about washing, and Jesus is using the same illustration of a bath to talk about what he's going to do. In verse 7, when Jesus says, you don't understand now, but you will later, what he's saying is this, if you think me washing your feet is humbling and humiliating, there's more to come. Within a very short period of time, you will see me humble myself to death on a cross. One of the commentators says the foot washing was shocking to Jesus' disciples, but not half as shocking as a Messiah who would die the hideous and shameful death of crucifixion, the death of the damned. See, just as foot washing was a demeaning thing that only the lowest did, crucifixion was the lowest death that you could die. Roman citizens couldn't be crucified. If a Roman citizen committed a capital crime and they were sentenced to execution, they, were, they had their heads cut off with a sword. They couldn't be crucified. It was too demeaning. It was for the lowest of the low. It was for traitors and the worst of criminals. Jesus, in doing this lowest job for his disciples, pictures the fact that he's going to the lowest form of death that the world offered, that he is going to become all that we are, all our sin, he became for us to achieve our salvation. And the resurrection, Jesus' resurrection, is God's affirmation, God's confirmation that that sacrifice on the cross has been accepted. And because of that, those that trust in Jesus, those that commit their lives to him and say, Lord, forgive me, I want to start afresh, I believe that you died for me, are justified, put right with God. Sin is forgiven. It's like having a bath, you, you're clean all over. But the thing that doesn't happen when we're saved, when we become a Christian, when we're justified, so we don't become perfect. I'd have liked that. You know, if you became a Christian and then there were no problems for the rest of your life, wouldn't that be good? You'd have no problem signing people up, would you? But it doesn't happen. You become a Christian and you are changed. There's no doubt about that. And the power of sin in your life is broken. The hymn says he breaks the power of cancelled sin. He sets the prisoner free. But you're not made perfect. And although our sin with a capital S is forgiven, we daily need to have our feet washed. We daily need to come to Jesus for forgiveness for the sins that we've committed and for a fresh start. Listen to what John says in his letter, 1 John chapter 1 and verse 8, if we claim to be without sin, now he's talking to Christians, he knows they're forgiven, that their sin with a capital S is forgiven, but if we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just, and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. If we claim we've not sinned, we make him out to be a liar, and his word has no place in our lives. If you're a Christian, you've been forgiven, you've had the bath, it doesn't need to be repeated, but your feet need to be washed every day. Maybe more often when we get our lives in a bit of a mess and we come to Jesus and say, I'm sorry, 
I messed up again. And he kneels in humility and washes our feet. We should notice, by the way, it's no good going in for the foot washing unless you've had the bath. There's got to be that one decisive point, although in our experience it may happen to us over a, seem to happen over a period of time that we find forgiveness with Christ, but that one decisive point where we are forgiven, where we're cleansed, where we believe, where the Holy Spirit comes and dwells in us and we're born again, where we're adopted into God's family. That's got to happen first. But after that is the daily routine of confession and forgiveness. If we say we don't need it, and there were people in John's day, that's why he was writing that in his letter, who said, it's okay, we're perfect now. We're okay, we, we're, we're going to heaven, nothing else matters. If we say we don't need to confess, if we say my life is okay, then at the least we are misunderstanding our salvation and our relationship with Jesus. At the worst, in the extreme, it would cast doubts on whether we'd ever been saved in the first place. Because here's one of the strange things. Once you've been saved, once you enter into a relationship with Jesus and you go on in that, you don't become less aware of sin, you become more aware of sin. And as you go on in the Christian life and God shapes our lives and changes us and makes us more like Jesus, so the Holy Spirit will prompt us about stuff that maybe a few years before we never even have thought was sinful. We start, we know what the obvious things are. And then as we go on with God, he points out other things in our lives that need to be dealt with, that need to be forgiven. And we come day by day to have our feet washed. That's the first theme that John has got in this story. It's about salvation, being washed. But then it's also about service. And it's there as Jesus makes the application at the end, when he'd finished washing their feet, he put on his clothes and returned to his place. Do you understand what I've done for you? He asked them. You call me teacher and Lord, and rightly so, for that is what I am. Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, and here's the crunch, you also should wash one another's feet. I have set you an example that you should do as I have done for you, I tell you the truth, no servant is greater than their master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. Now that you know these things, you will be blessed if you do them. What does it mean to be a servant? Have you ever thought about it? I want to read you a diary of a real servant. This woman lived in 1860, and this is her entry in her diary for the 14th of July. The entry starts at 6.30 in the morning. Yes, there really is a 6.30 in the morning. And she was up and at work. And this is her diary for the day. Opened the shutters and lighted the kitchen fire. Shook my sooty things in the dust hole and emptied the soot there. Swept and dusted the rooms and the hall. Laid the cloth and got breakfast up. Cleaned two pairs of boots. Made the beds and emptied the slops. Cleared and washed the breakfast things away. Cleaned the plate. Cleaned the knives and got dinner up. Cleared away. Cleaned the kitchen up. Unpacked a hamper. Took two chickens to Mrs. Brewer's and brought the message back. Made a tart and picked and gutted two ducks and roasted them. Cleaned the steps and flags on my knees. Black-leaded the scraper in front of the house. 
cleaned the street flags too on my knees, had tea, cleared away, washed up in the scullery, cleaned the pantry on my knees and scoured the tables, scrubbed the flags around the house and cleaned the windowsills, got tea at nine for the master and Mrs. Warwick in my dirt. What she means by that is she hadn't changed into her clean clothes, but Anne, a fellow servant, carried it up. Having done all that work, she couldn't even take their meal up without changing into clean clothes so that the masters didn't uh, come into contact with the dirtier work of the house. Cleaned the privy and the passage and the scullery floor on my knees, washed the door, cleaned the sink down, put the supper ready for Anne to take up, for I was too dirty and tired to go upstairs. That was 11 p.m. 6.30 to 11 in the evening. That was a typical servant in Victorian times. And our problem is we've forgotten what it is to be a servant. You see, life is really very clean and sanitized for us, isn't it? Nobody works those sort of hours in this country. Nobody does that sort of labor. Nobody is literally at somebody's beck and call. We've got a nice, easy, regulated life. We've no idea what it is to be a servant. We've forgotten that it's hard work. We've forgotten that it's inconvenient. We've forgotten that it's frustrating. We've forgotten that it's unrewarding. Because let's face it, for most of us, if we don't like a job, we don't do it. We go and look for something else. But Jesus doesn't say, read this story and try and feel really humble. I'll let you in on a secret. You can't feel humble. Humility is something that maybe other people recognize in you, but you can never recognize in yourself because the moment you're aware of it, you're not humble. Because humility is a focus on other people and not on yourself. Jesus says, don't go away and, and try and create feelings of what a humble person I am. He doesn't say, go away and listen to a sermon. You know, get down to Mutley Baptist Church. They're preaching on John 13. Listen to a sermon on washing people's feet. He doesn't say, go to a house group. Get into a group together and study the Bible and look at this passage, look up all the commentaries, um, think of all the implications of it and do a really good, thorough study of it. He says instead, what I have done, you do. That's scaringly simple, isn't it? Now, he doesn't literally mean that we should wash one another's feet. That would just be weird, wouldn't it? We, that's not a need in our society. And sometimes people get into discussions of what is the equivalent of foot washing? You know, you're going to offer to clean people's shoes or, I don't know, wash their cars. Or, but that misses the whole point. It's not trying to find an equivalent to foot washing. What Jesus is saying is, be the kind of person who is always serving others. Have a servant heart. Have a servant mentality. It doesn't matter what the jobs are. It's about the way that we look at the world. Are we there as someone who is to be served or someone who serves? Think about your situation at home, wherever you live, school or college, in the workplace. What do people think about you? Are you known as a person who does as little as possible? Are you known as a person who skives off at every opportunity? Are you known as a person who avoids difficult 
and unpleasant jobs? Are you known as someone who has to be asked or nagged or pressured to do practically anything? Or are you known as somebody who's always ready to do more than your fair share? Who's always ready to pick up the jobs that nobody else wants to do? Who's always ready to volunteer rather than wait to be asked? And you think, yeah, if I did that, people would take advantage of me. It would be inconvenient and difficult. And it would take up a lot of my time when I could be doing other things. Yeah, that's what service is about. Service is inconvenient and difficult. And it takes away time from things that we could do for ourselves. And that's what Jesus called his followers to do. It doesn't mean you can never have a moment to yourself. It doesn't mean you can't have a holiday. It doesn't mean you can't have a break. Whatever. But it's about that attitude of heart that says, I want to serve and I will serve. Despite the cost. The cost to Jesus was death on the cross. Fruit washing was nothing compared with that. But it was picturing the price that he would pay. And we're saying, I'm not going to pay the price of being a bit tired in the evening. I'm not going to pay the price of missing some television or time with a computer. I'm not going to pay the price of inconveniencing myself. What are you known as amongst your friends and your family and your colleagues and other people? Someone who avoids service or someone who serves? And then there's service in the church. This is a church in the community for the community. It's about serving one another in the church and serving the community that's out there because that's what churches are for. We're not here just to serve one another. And it's a big church. It does a lot of things. If you go out that door over there, on the wall of the stairs, there is a, a cross. And it's made up of words. And if you read the words, they're all the different activities and organizations that happen in the church. There's a lot of them. I haven't been and counted but there's lots of them. Lots of stuff goes on. There is a lot of service happening in this church. But I don't think it would be an exaggeration to say that pretty well every aspect of church life needs more workers, needs more servants. There are people doing brilliant jobs, working with the vulnerable, working with children, working with young people, working with families, working with stuff in the community, and everybody is under pressure because there aren't enough people to do it as effectively as we could do it. And even if we filled up all the gaps on what we're already doing, there is so much more that we could do. A church this size should be making a major impact in the city of Plymouth. If you've been reading those stories in the paper about a group of Muslims in the Birmingham area who have been infiltrating the schools. They have been trying to get various schools to become more solidly Muslim following the particular um, teachings that they hold to. And they've done it in all sorts of ways, getting rid of staff that didn't fit in, changing the curriculum, all this kind of stuff. And it's now coming out and being exposed. And Ofsted are, 
I forget the latest count, investigating about 19 schools. Now, I don't agree with their beliefs. I don't agree with their methods. And I don't agree with their objectives. But I tell you what, their dedication to what they believe and what they want to do puts Christians to shame. When do we get serious about changing our society? We've got the truth and the love of God in Jesus. And are we serious about getting it out there? Are we serious about the fact that something like 8% of people in this country come to church, so there's 92% that need to hear and won't unless we go to them? Are we serious about changing the political structures? Are we serious about changing the education structures? Are we serious about changing business practices and business structures? It's called being salt and light. And we don't want to adopt the methods that these people have done. But we need to learn a lesson about commitment and dedication and getting stuck in to do the stuff that God would call us to do. Let me give you two quotes to think about. They're both from people who gave their lives to mission. One said this, a man called Jim Elliott. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. He's talking about giving our lives. He's no fool who gives their life, which we're going to lose anyway, to gain eternal life. And then, going back somewhat older, a man called C.T. Studd said this, If Christ be God and died for me, then no sacrifice can be too great for me to make for him. Do you believe that? If Christ be God and died for me, then no sacrifice can be too great for me to make for him. Let's try and wrap this up. Because there's another sort of theme that, that's wound into it that maybe pulls this together a bit more. There's an old commentator who has a curious sort of comment on this story. He says this, Let it be noted that our Lord's ministry ended with a supper. That the last ordinance he appointed was a supper, that's communion. That one promise he has left to believers is, I will come and sup with him in Revelation 3.20, and that the first thing that will take place at his second coming will be the marriage supper of the Lamb. All point to the same great truth, the close union, familiarity, and comfortable intimacy between Christ and his people. It is a thing, he says, far too little known. To eat with somebody, particularly in the time of Jesus, to eat with somebody regularly, was to say something about your relationship with that person, that you were accepted, that you were welcomed, that you were, to use those old-fashioned words, on terms of comfortable intimacy with them. You were friends. You cared for one another. Now, before Jesus washed the feet of the disciples, before Jesus went to the cross, we are told he knew various things. He knew that the time had come for him to leave the world and go to the Father. That the Father had put all things under his power. That he had come from God and was returning to God. 
In other words, Jesus knew who he was and what he was doing and why. Because he was in intimate relationship with his father. And as we grow in faith, we grow closer to Jesus. Our relationship deepens. We get to know him more. We get to love him more. We get to be more like him. That's the most amazing promise in Scripture, that we become more like Jesus. And the call to commit ourselves as Christian follow, as Christ followers, as disciples, to serving one another, to serving the church, to serving the world in his name, is not, ne- not and never was intended to be a guilt trip. It was never intended to be a nag from the front of the church by somebody preaching a sermon. It was never intended to be a way in which we somehow have to earn God's favor. It was always something that comes out of being close to Jesus. The closer we get to Jesus, the more we want to be the kind of person he is. The more we want to serve, the more it becomes natural for us to do it. Ricky said at the beginning, quoting from Gerard Hughes, wasn't it? Uh, that we need to let God serve us. And the more we reflect on all that God has done and is doing and will do for us, then the more that desire comes to serve. That's where it comes from. Not because we're bullied or cajoled into it, but bit by bit, we see that Jesus opens doors and says, you could do that. You could be involved in that. There's somebody who you could show my love to. And we look at it and we think, oh, that's actually not a job I would want to do. That's not a very pleasant job. That's not a very rewarding job. That's not a very convenient job. And we think, and neither was washing the disciples' feet. And we think, Neither was going to the cross. And there's a bonus. There's a bonus to serving others. And the bonus is, when we serve others, we actually find we are serving Jesus himself. I'm going to finish with a passage of scripture from Matthew 25. I'm not going to comment on it. I think it makes its own point. In serving others, we serve Jesus. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my father, take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you invited me in. I needed clothes, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you looked after me. I was in prison, and you came to visit me. Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry? and feed you, or thirsty, and give you something to drink? When did we see you a stranger and invite you in, or needing clothes and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and go to visit you? And the king will reply, I tell you the truth, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you know our own situations. You know our hearts. We pray that you will give us servant hearts. 
we pray that as you change our hearts, so you will open our eyes to the opportunities to serve you by serving others. And Father, we pray that this will be out of love for you and all that you have done for us. Father, maybe some here tonight don't yet know you. I've never received that salvation, had that bath, that washing of sin. Father, break into lives tonight that need to do business with you and find forgiveness and cleansing. And for all of us, for our daily failures, Father, we come to you and we ask that our feet be washed, that our sins be forgiven, because you are faithful and just. In Jesus' name, amen.